Amen. As you're able, I'd invite you to stay standing for Psalm 100. This is our Old Testament reading today. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious God, I pray now that you would send your spirit to do what I can't do, what none of us can do on our own, namely to open our eyes and unblock our ears to the truth of the gospel, that we would be changed, and that as we do that, our hearts would be so overflowing with thanksgiving and gratitude that we sing and live with joy for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 100 calls us to joyfully worship God with gratitude and reminds us, because we all often forget, of the oceans of reasons that we have to praise him, of, of why we should shout and sing for joy because of our God. One morning week before last, I woke up and sat down for my morning devotions in the early morning, for my individual time of worship. And if I'm honest, I wasn't feeling grateful. So my daughters had been up in the night, hadn't slept well, and the areas of my life where I ought to have been the most grateful, God's sovereign choice to create, redeem, and guide me, a good church, a faithful wife, two lovely girls, an employment which both provides for our family and gives me opportunity to serve, were actually areas where I was feeling particularly ungrateful joyless and without praise. And in fact, in each of those areas, I was leaning towards grumbling and complaining about various different things. So there I sat with my closed Bible and my cup of coffee. If I'm honest, much more interested in the coffee than the Bible. And my phone chimed. It was my daily news update from the BBC. My heart was captivated. Like I reached for my phone and there, like conviction, because I had been thinking some on Psalm 100 in pe preparation for this sermon. And in that moment, clear as day, I was obviously and evidently not walking in the way of the psalm. Right? Rather than making a joyful noise to the Lord, I was silently lost that morning in my own restlessness. 
And rather than worshiping the Lord with gladness, I was numbing my inner restlessness by eating what the BBC wanted to feed me. And rather than coming into this five-course meal of his presence, which has been spread before each of us with singing, I sat on the outside silently satisfied with junk food. And surely I'm not alone, right? What I just described, which I think we could summarize as atrophied affections, we've all experienced in some way. And what do I mean by atrophied affections? Simply this. Our joy and our gratefulness to God for who he is and for his grace to us is too often fickle, underdeveloped, because we're so easily satisfied with lesser things. And this psalm comes to us, Psalm 100, and it says, joyfully worship God with gratitude, and then it reminds us of the oceans of reasons that we have to praise him. Yet, each one of us here is a broken person. And, as we've already talked about today, our affections are disordered. Our desires are misdirected, and our hearts are restless. And rather than joyfully worshiping God, rising each day with this sense of gratitude, with a song on our lips for his abundant goodness to us, don't we often wake up and launch into our days without even thinking about him? Rather than being glad that he's called us into his service, don't we often complain because he isn't serving us the way we want? And rather than coming into his presence with song, don't we often go whole days without singing anything to the Lord? And even this morning, as we've come into his gates, into the time of worship, What words would most accurately describe the posture of our hearts? Is thanksgiving at the top of the list? Joy? Delight? Gladness? We've been given so much. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, puts it this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So this psalm comes to me and says, Joe, there's nothing evil about your cup of coffee or your BBC app. It's just that there's someone so much infinitely grander inviting you into communion with himself. And in a way, you're turning him down to make mud pies. Howard alluded to this last week with Psalm 95. You'll hear some overtones of that here. Many commentators see 93 through 100 as a single book of the Psalms with repeated themes, right? He asked us, are we more excited about God the Father or football, honestly? 
Are our hearts more satisfied with the Super Bowl or with the Son of God? And, and I think you heard from him last week, neither he nor I are trying to bash football. He loves football. But that's besides the point. The point is, what are we worshiping? In what ways are we the ignorant child saying no to the holiday at the sea in order to keep making our mud pies in a slum? Let's let the psalm remind us of the holiday at the sea today, of, of the oceans of reasons that we have to praise God, no matter what's going on in our lives. So just by way of structure, we'll look at first the call to worship, second, the reason to worship, and then third, getting going with gratitude. So first, the call to worship. In a sense, this whole psalm is calling us to worship, but particularly the first two verses, they say, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And notice that there is both here a command and an invitation. So first, there's a command to worship. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. And anybody who wants to take this seriously immediately has questions. How can I make a joyful noise to the Lord and serve the Lord with gladness if I don't feel either joy or gladness? And it's not an illegitimate question because... It's true, there's a sense in which joy and gladness are emotions. But, and the psalm reminds us, that's not the only sense. So there's another sense, and, and stick with me, this isn't the whole of the psalm, but this is a part of it. There's a sense in which this comes down to obedience, to duty. Now, I'm not saying that worship is a duty, period, end of the story, let's go. That, that's, of course, that's not it. But there is a duty to worship. And perhaps we can see that most clearly if we slow down just for a moment and ask, what is this joyful noise that we're commanded to make? So what is two words in your English Bible there is one word in the Hebrew, and it can be really helpful to see where else this turns up in the Old Testament. If in your mind you'll go with me back to the book of Joshua real quick. So the Israelites have just completed their 40 years of wilderness wandering. Moses has died and Joshua is taking them into the promised land. So they go across the Jordan and they enter the promised land and it's like, ah, peace, right? No, there's Jericho, this, this castle filled with mighty men of valor. And how does God tell them to deal with Jericho? He doesn't draw up a battle plan. He doesn't ask them to muster the army for war. He tells Joshua to get all the people together and march around the city once a day for a week, then on the seventh day, seven times, and at the end of that, the priests are to blow their trumpets, and all the people are to make a joyful noise. It's the same word. And the walls of the city will fall flat down. In fact, most of the time when this word is used in the Old Testament, 
It's a battle cry, often in the face of impossible odds, with seemingly no way out. Did the people of Israel feel like making a joyful noise? Probably not. They were probably just hot and tired from marching around the city all week, and perhaps even a little skeptical about what was going to happen after their joyful noise. But that's besides the point. They were called to obey. They were called to make a joyful noise, and we are as well. And this is the beautiful part. It's actually freeing. This obedience in worship can be done even when we don't feel like it, and even in the face of impossible odds. Even if we're hot and tired, we are his servants and he commands us to worship him. But, and this is important, the call is not just a command. It's never just a duty. There's an invitation. Come into his presence or come before his face. It's a relational dynamic. We're invited to enjoy him. Here we're invited to delight in the Lord, the personal God who loves us and created us and chose us. So which is it? How do I get going? Is this a duty or is this a delight? It's both and they're connected And we know duty can and does lead to delight. Sometimes you just have to get going to feel it, but it's not a formulaic thing, and we're not promised certain emotions every time. So brother, sister, are you here today simply because you knew it was the right thing to do and it was all you could do just to turn up to worship? Praise God. We just lifted our voice to him in worship. You're in good company. Saints throughout the ages have worshiped without feeling like it. And even, perhaps especially, if their circumstances didn't seem to dictate it. So we sing. We lift our voice. But here's the thing. And I hope you're feeling this by now. The overall tone of this psalm is nothing like drudgerous duty. Imagine a child getting up from his mud pie in the slum and saying, fine, I'll obey you. I'll leave this slum. I'll leave these mud pies and go to a holiday at the sea just because you told me to and it's the right thing to do. That's crazy. But that's similar, right? It's what I had to do on that morning with my mixed up devotion time. I had to say, Lord, honestly, I am more captivated by my phone and the BBC app and news which I will likely never think about again than I am by you. Help me. And here's the thing. He did. So there in my closed Bible was the order of worship from the prior Sunday. And I was looking at it, and it was almost looking at me. Are you going to sing me? And so I, I had to make myself do it. And there at my desk in the early morning by myself, I took out the order of worship, which we had all sung together, and I started to sing. Here's what I sing. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And then forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, 
I sacrifice them to his blood. And then the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. And then lastly, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And as I sang what is true about our God, the BBC got smaller. I was less captivated by mud pies as I began to delight in him. And I caught a glimpse ever so small of that holiday at the sea. And my atrophied affections began to grow. Why? Just simply because I started singing? Well, song is a part, an important part, but I don't think that's the essence of what's happening. Rather, the truth was coming in like a wrecking ball against the idols of my heart, and I was being reminded of the gospel, the good news of what's been done for me in Christ, and that's what this psalm does when it turns the corner to the reason for our worship. Verses 3 and 5, here it is. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. These are truths which we are called to know. The Lord is good. He created us. He redeemed us. He cares for us. He is steadfast in love and forever faithful. And the key actor here is God. The key thing to know is him. Did you notice the pronouns? He, he, his, 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 his. Where does worship start? It starts with him. If you sit down to worship or pray and you begin with your circumstances, your feelings, your problems, your anything, it's highly likely that your worship won't be sustained and it will turn back on itself. Which is why in every one of our worship services, we begin by someone standing up here and saying, God is calling us to worship today. And I'd like to flesh this out just a little more. So what is it that we're called to know? First, the Lord is God. This is as big as it can get, and this thought pulls all of our lesser thoughts into perspective. Whatever else you may or may not know, know that the Lord is God. He made us, and we are his. You did not make yourself. You were made by him. And therefore, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to him. There's no such thing as what our culture says is a self-made man. Further, if you're in Christ, not only did he make you as in create you, he has remade you. That's what we read in Ephesians 2. 
We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The pressure's off to prove yourself. Our restless hearts have infinite reason to rest, for here we're told that we may know our maker. We are his people. He's redeemed us. Where would you be if he'd not claimed you as his own? Apart from his choice to draw us to himself, every single one of us would be lost and without hope in the world. We wouldn't be a part of his people. And we are the sheep of his pasture. He is our shepherd, and he is a good shepherd. Right? We should cue Psalm 23 here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And, and someone in the room at this point, someone should interject. Wait just a second. You've made all of this sound like good news. But essentially what you're saying to me is that I have to admit that I'm not my own master. And that I'm not my own Lord. And that my life belongs to someone else. And the psalm says, yes. You understand now. But don't be deceived into thinking that this is some kind of loss. This is actually infinite gain. Because whether or not you'd like to believe it, you are like a sheep, gone astray, turned to your own way. And a stray sheep is a dead sheep. A stray sheep is wolf food. And there you were, stray sheep, rightfully deserving to die because you'd gone your own way. But the good shepherd loves you so much that he comes after you and finds you and picks you up and returns you to the flock to care for you and feed you. Don't you want that kind of shepherd, stray sheep? Or would you rather wander the mountain crags alone without a shepherd, your wool matted with burrs, your stomach growling, and perilous foes around every corner? No, it's a simple choice. Listen to what Jesus says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And I lay down my life for the sheep. What kind of shepherd lays down his life for the sheep? That's crazy. I'll tell you what kind. It's a verse five kind. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. See, God had every right to leave us stray sheep wandering in the wilderness, but he did not. And not only did he bring us to the flock, back to the camp, to his pasture, but he paid for our wanderings. See, whereas we should have been slain and left for dead outside the camp, devoured by some wolf, Jesus was slain for us outside the camp. The one who never wandered took the punishment for all of our wanderings so that we don't have to wander anymore, so that we belong 
so that we can be the sheep of his pasture. And so what's to be our response? Verse 4, the whole title of the psalm, a psalm for thanksgiving. Gratitude. Think with me. How does a child respond who gets plucked up out of his mud pie slum and plopped down on a beautiful beach for a holiday at the sea? What? How am I so lucky to be here? Do you know what a child looks like when they've been given an outlandishly awesome gift? Have you ever seen those YouTube videos when a father who's been deployed in the military comes home early and surprises his first grade daughter by showing up at school? Like, yes, yes, yes. Like squeals, tears, hugs. A heart overflowing with gratitude. Colossians 2, 7, overflowing with thankfulness. You see, gratitude is perhaps the best indicator of how well our theology has moved from our heads to our hearts. Are we grateful people for this outlandish grace that's been given to us? Thankfulness is a necessary response to God's goodness to us in Christ Jesus. We've been given oceans of reasons to delight and sing for joy to him. How can some Christians who live in unspeakable suffering and misery still abound with gratefulness? While other Christians who live in unspeakably luxurious comfort walk around ungrateful and prone to bitterness. I don't think it's too simplistic to say that one is remembering God while the other has forgotten him. One has just been dwelling on the fact that again, as we read in Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. The other Christian needs to lift up their eyes off of their circumstances and remember God. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I'd like to close with prayer, but it's a prayer written by another, Scotty Smith, who is a pastor. So I'd invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the calling to thankfulness. We know that gratitude is a discipline before it's a feeling, a remembering before it's a rejoicing. Indeed, gratitude is warfare a bold protest and strong defense against envy, whining, and fear. So this morning, we want to express thanks for the inexpressible gift of the gospel. No matter what else is going on in our hearts, in our day, or in our world, we are hidden in Christ, sealed with the Spirit, and adopted as your kids. 
You have forgiven our sins and robed us in Jesus' righteousness, rooted us in your love and promised sufficient grace. Nothing can separate us from your love, thwart your eternal plans, or keep us from heaven. Jesus ever prays for us, and the Holy Spirit does the same in us. Why would we ever fear or complain about anything? Father, thank you that one day you'll put everything right, make all things new, and wipe away every tear. Thank you that you are presently working in all things for our good and your glory, even in the things that vex, confuse, and cause us heartache. Help us, Lord, to remain grateful. In Jesus' tender and triumphant name we pray. Amen.